2: Hello and welcome to our special edition Valentine's Day bonus episode of Outward. I'm Christina Cotterucci, and as a queer Italian-American, I would like to say you're welcome, world, for my culture's latest contribution to our visual communication, the new pinched finger, a.k.a. kissing <laughs> emoji.
3: <laughs> I'm Ramana Alam. And as someone who has been married for so long now that the other night at dinner, my husband and I could not remember the year in which we were married. (laughs) I am still nevertheless looking
1: forward to Valentine's Day. And I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward. And um, you guys, I'm really disappointed by the low number of candy grams I've gotten for Valentine's Day. So we really need to get on that. Thanks.
2: Well, it's such a treat to be able to hang out with you guys one extra time this month. Um, So listeners, we are going to have a regular episode dropping the last week of this month, but today for our bonus episode, we are focusing on you and your needs because you deserve all of the happiness and fulfillment in the world. So this week, we are going to try to give it to you. You've asked us for advice, and we've brought in an esteemed guest to help us answer your questions. John Paul Bramer, who writes the Ola Papi advice column. So we're gonna skip our prides and provocations for this episode so we can spend more time on y'all's issues. But at the end of the episode, in the spirit of love and Saint Valentine, I think was a person, <laughs> uh, we're gonna give you a gay agenda full of queer romance. Brian, take us away.
1: Yeah, uh, so excited for this episode um, and to have John Paul in the studio with us in New York. Um, For those who don't know, he is a writer and author from rural Oklahoma, currently living in Brooklyn. His advice column, Ola Poppy, is amazing. I've been a big fan for years. It's been at multiple publications, but currently it's on Substack, so that's a newsletter subscription you can do. Um, He's also working on a memoir of the same name with Simon & Schuster, which will be out in 2021. It's gonna be incredible. Uh, his writing and illustrations have appeared all over the place, uh, Washington Post, Food and Wine, also Slate. I've had the pleasure of editing yes. him before. So, uh, John Paul, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I thought we'd start off with just chatting with you a little bit mm-hmm. about your work uh, and and your sort of place in the advice world. Yes. Um, it's a really crowded field, it advice. It is. There's it's the very l- crowded. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, I mean, at Slate here, we have like 18 advice columns, I think, um, <laughs> and they're, you know, everybody has one. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the origins of Ola Poppy and what you were trying to accomplish and sort of add to the mix. Yeah, I love telling the story
0: of um, Ola Poppy because it's kind of funny and cynical. So I started it out at Into, which I don't know if you remember Into,
1: may it rest in peace. Um, the grinder publication. Yes, yeah. the
0: grinder publication that um, shuttered, uh, well, I guess it's technically still running, but in my mind it's dead. Yeah. Because um, they don't really run constant anymore. But um, I was a freelancer trying to make ends meet in New York. I had perilously close to having to move back with my family in Oklahoma mm. after some job things didn't work out for me. Got a contractor gig at NBC um, that let me freelance on the side. So of course my day was full of like, I <laughs> I remember I would um, ride the train to NBC, write mm. a Teen Vogue puff piece in the morning on my phone, get to oh NBC, God. report on Chechnya, <laughs> go home, cry, freelance on other things. And so I was I was going at it because I just did not want to go back to Oklahoma. Yeah. So this new thing um, called Into popped up and my friend Matthew Rodriguez was like, hey, I just got hired at this cool new place. Do you want to try pitching a column? And I was like, yes, of course. In the freelance mindset, maybe um, you would uh, empathize with this. You say yes to everything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If someone says, could you write this? Could you write that? Yes, 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 yes. Of course. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) the way I reverse engineered an advice column, something I never actually set out to do in the first place, was that I thought, okay, uh, to maximize my number of checks, I should write something once a week. It should be recurring. Um, But I don't trust myself to come up with a new topic to write about every mm. single week. So what do I do? And then I was like, you know, there's this thing out there where they come to you with the subject. <laughs> <Genius>. <laughs> right. this is and you don't have to think that hard at all. Um, and so I was like, okay, cool, cool. Uh, I'll do an advice column because, you know, the homosexuals, they never run out of drama. I'll always have <laughs> something to write about. Yeah. Um, and then the next issue was naming it. And so Into uh, had all these fun play on words uh, for their properties that, you know, um, sort of bounced off the grinder idea. So mm. Into itself was named after something that people often say to each other on grinder. They say Into, yeah. and, you know, like, what are you sexually into? What are you looking for? Um, they had this other sort of celebrity interview uh, series called Zero Feet Away, oh, which right. I thought was really <laughs> right. funny. Yeah. That was cute. Didn't take off the way I w- was hoping it would, <laughs> just because I like the name so much. Um, <laughs> but that's where I was getting my information from. And yeah. so I was like, okay, well, what's something that I could name an advice column? So I thought about my experiences with Grindr, and that's when I thought, yeah, people are always saying hola papi to me on mm-hmm. Grindr, um, in a sort of like, you know, sexualized Latino fetishistic way. So I was like, it would be really funny if I could just sort of subvert that in a way and... Yeah. Sort of have people say hola papi to me, but they're the ones like coming to me for with a question yeah. for my wisdom instead of like you know reducing me in a way. Um, so I was like, Yeah, that sounds fun, that's subversive, why not? Um, so I pitched it as queer Latinx, dear Abby Huffing Poppers to,
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> to Zach Stafford, who was editor in chief at the time, and he was like, Oh my god, that name! Yeah, um, and wisely, I was going to make it a spoof of an advice column because I was like, I am a messy Twitter homosexual. I, you know, have no real qualifications to give someone else advice on how to live. Who does? Um, Right, like who
4: does?
0: (laughs) Um, And so I was like, well, if I can spoof advice, if I can really marry it to this Dear Abby concept and have it be this satirical take on like, you know, gay drama or the trials and tribulations of being queer, that would be fun. Um, And then (laughs) all this was like, a you know, a well-rounded plan for making money and having fun and whatever. But then, you know, the letters started coming in. Yeah, <laughs> um, And I quickly realized that this was a part of the queer experience that hadn't really been touched on that deeply before because I think there were a lot of people... And also, the grinder technology was uniquely positioned to reach people that maybe weren't connected to mainstream U.S. queer mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. So I was getting letters from people in India, people in Africa, people in, like, Latin America. I was wow, getting letters yeah. from people who... You know, their day-to-day lives, they couldn't be as out as some of us here in New York are. And so I think they were looking for any sort of nebulous authority figure that they could just reach out to and say, hey, can you teach me how to be? Yeah. (laughs) and that's when I realized, God, now I have to like grow up. <laughs> well, what was <laughs> it? <I> w- <laughs> what was it like
1: for you to have to adjust to that responsibility? Like it, from this yeah. sort of playful idea to this, like, because you, I, yeah. When I think of the column, it's super empathetic. Like mm-hmm. you have this sense of camaraderie, and it it is is playful and it's funny always. But like also very serious. Yeah, so what um, what was that adjustment like? So the column nowadays and has been for
0: like over a year has, is like, I think, pretty warm, empathetic. It's very caring. Yeah. Um, not things I would have used to describe myself <laughs> when, I first, <laughs> when I first launched the column um, because, you know, I I saw myself as the scrappy underdog in media because I come from a rural community. Mm. I was sort of relegated to writing only about like Mexican and gay identity for a content mill for a long time. Um, and I had a lot of bitterness in my heart when I was, you know, logging onto Twitter every day and I saw all these people who I thought were getting paid more than me, Mm -hmm. had the verification check, you know, were getting opportunities that I would never have to write about things that no one trusted me to write about. So I was a pretty angry person, I think. Like, I think I was talented. I think that I was able to tackle things pretty well, but... I I did wrestle with a lot of, like, uh, feelings of inadequacy, feeling of this isn't fair, and I thought the way to claw my way up was to sort of be scrappy and to be aggressive. Mm. And here was this... (laughs) A media space where that wouldn't serve me. It was sort of like, no, actually, you have to be kind. <laughs> yeah. You have to be empathetic. You have to... And that's who I am naturally, I think. It's just that, you know, living in New York and failing and, you know, almost having to move back home had sure. sort of calloused those things over. And so it was a way to remind myself like, oh, wait, I'm actually a pretty forgiving, warm, open yeah. person. Um, so I think that I grew up because of the column a lot like, and I think it also opened my eyes to a lot of experiences from people around the world mm. to be like, hey, actually you're not doing that bad. There are people out yeah. there who have a lot of real problems in their life. I remember I got um, a letter from someone from a country where homosexuality is illegal and you can actually be jailed. And he was like, I think I like this guy and I think he's coming on to me, but also if I make that known, I could go to jail. And that's a question I didn't answer because I was like, I don't want to hurt someone. That's what it is. It's the wrestling with the idea of having a capacity to wound someone or to injure someone who's coming to you (laughs) for help. And I think having to hold that, no matter how funny you want to be, no matter how entertaining you want to be, you don't want to be reckless with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what made me more responsible.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about this in the way that giving advice to specifically LGBTQ people might differ from the job description of any other advice columnist in that part of why people read advice columns and also I think part of why people write in is the desire to sort of be read or watch people be read for filth or at least to get like honest advice that it can be hard to get from people who know you and who might be blinded by their love for you. Yeah. So, But, you know, even in our experience getting emails from folks who listen to Outward, I it's very hard for me to even take that kind of tone. And, and oh gosh, in yeah. preparing for this episode and reading these questions, there was no question where I felt like I wanted to be like, you're doing this wrong or right. like, you know, why do you feel that way about something? Because you're talking about these very sensitive topics like, identity. I mean, how do you answer questions, especially if it's coming from somebody who has a very different experience from you? How do you come and, and develop that sense of empathy while also trying to Give people honest advice,
0: so lucky for me, I think I deal better with the esoteric than with the sort of everyday practical. I'm a deeply impractical person. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm very bad at most things. <laughs> but when it comes to the big, confusing, abstract things, that's what really like lights me up, and mm. that's where I really feel comfortable. And I'm just lucky in that way to be dealing with LGBTQ issues because so much of what dictates our everyday life, is kind of abstract, is sort of esoteric, is about these deeper themes. Um, Part of that is just because we've existed outside of, you know, what's considered quote-unquote normal for so long. We've had to come up with our own words for things. We've had to really play with language. We've had to play with how we see ourselves, how we present ourselves to the world. And these are all very philosophical, sort of difficult-to-grasp concepts. And that's what I enjoy, because when I look at other advice columnists, um, many of whom I really like and look up to, I don't have that, like thundering down from the heavens thing that people sort of want. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> when they, like, sometimes I think people approach advice column and they're ready to see someone just get wrecked. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, they yeah. want to see, like, okay, smack this person back into line or whatever. And that's not usually something I can do because most of the time it's someone saying, like, who am I? <laughs> mm. And I'm not going to just, like... You know, callously smack them around and be like, "This is what you are. You're bisexual." Like <laughs> Get that's it just together. like yeah. right. Yeah. Like that's that's just not how I operate, and I think that <sighs> that's something we stigmatize in the queer community, rightfully so. Yeah. And so I feel like I. I fit in a lot better here as an advice columnist than I would if I was giving advice on like, you know, there's all sorts of flavors now. It's like pet care, child care, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sex, like all these other things that it specializes in corporate America, how to like succeed in business or how to be a better coworker, those sort of things can and often do require really like concise Mm -hmm. um, effective tone to them and I'm glad I don't have to do that sometimes I do sometimes it's obvious (laughs) where it's just like no don't try to hook your coworker up with your wife that's weird (laughs) I had that one time I mean it's fun when I get to sort of play as that character but overall that's that's not who I am yeah
1: um let's uh shift into question mode uh, i just want to thank our listeners uh and twitter followers and whatnot for submitting these questions it was a great mix um we couldn't get to them all but we are very grateful for y'all giving us content <laughs> to uh address and since you mentioned actually uh getting the buy question a lot we have mm-hmm. one like that so maybe Wonderful. we'll start Can't with wait. start with that yes so this is from baby Bye. she writes I'm bi and I've always known it for as long as I can remember, but I'm terrified to actually put myself out there. I'm 26 and I'm afraid women will think I am just trying things out rather than being a very earnest novice. I don't want women to think that they're a phase or an experiment. How can I start dating? I'm scared I'll be bad and embarrassing. So that is from Baby Vibe. <laughs> what do we think? I
0: love that question because it kind of touches on something that I see a lot of in my letters, which is the idea that everyone who is not you and as part of a community, has a, like, a collective hive mind. So it's sort of like every bi woman out there is aware, like every lesbian woman or woman who's into women is going to immediately know like she's new here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. she's not battle-tested yet. And like we shouldn't <laughs> deal with that. But I think the reality is it's a lot more fluid than that. There are a lot of people I know from personal experience in my inbox who are in this exact same place where this person is. And I think everyone, to some degree even if they think they have their type down and that they only ever date one you know, gender yeah. expression or whatever, we're all trying things out. And we're all sort of trying new things all the time. Like, I remember, this is like a really weak example, but um, I got onto Scruff for the first time in years the other day, and I was like, what's happening on this interface? <laughs> like, <laughs> what separates these people from the other people? And I, like, met someone off there, and I was like, I don't know, this is weird. I'm not, I don't know, I haven't used this app to, like, locate someone, just because Grindr is what I know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so I'm just like, well... Sure, let's do it. We had a great time and everything, but even something as simple as that, you know, yeah. changing the way you find someone, that's trying something new. I think that this person's maybe a little too preoccupied with like, okay, but how do I log enough experience points mm-hmm. so that I can level up enough <laughs> to sort of deign to try my hand with being a woman? And I, I think that it's not about that. It's about, does this person feel your energy? Do you feel theirs? <laughs> totally. Then go off and be together, do something together, have fun.
2: I'll say that it. It made me sad to hear this person say, I'm scared I'll be bad. I know. Because I don't think there is a way to be bad at dating unless you are disrespectful or something. And and don't treat other people with care. Right. So as long as you do that, you're not going to be bad at dating.
3: And even the fact that she's asking this question, to me, indicates that she probably will be good at dating Mm because she's already mindful of the potential to hurt or mislead somebody, Mm -hmm, which suggests, mm -hmm. like, she's thoughtful and she cares. So I feel like she should just maybe be a little easier on herself. Yeah, Yeah. I,
0: like, I, like, 95% of the letters I get from bi people, that's the advice is like, be, be kinder to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Come on.
2: I also know a lot of queer women I know got their starts, so to speak, with, someone who made a little bit of a habit of hooking up with women who up until that point had identified as straight or hetero flexible or maybe were bi but had never hooked up with a woman before. Like, yeah. there are definitely people whose type is that, too. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know if, yeah. you know, this person would be into that, but like, that's how I got converted, so to Initiated.
4: speak. Initiated. Yeah. Initiated.
2: <laughs> and, you know, there are, I think... Uh, maybe some people would disagree with me on this, but I think one way to assure other people, but more importantly to reassure herself that this is a place she belongs is to show a little bit of investment in queer culture and communities. You know, like mm. read some books, read queer blogs, like familiarize yourself with the language people use so you don't, don't feel out of place if right. you go to a gay bar or something. And and maybe she already does, but I know like this is, if I'm talking to somebody I am not immediately thinking, like, how many women have they hooked up with. But I do notice if they, like, don't know, you know, basic, like, names of queer organizations or, like, have no idea the terminology that I'm using. And that might make me think not this person isn't queer enough or whatever, but just like, oh, I don't know that I have a shared culture with this person.
0: And I think it's also important for people myself. This brings me a lot of comfort to just remember that like no one knows what they're doing. I think it's, mm-hmm. very, easy. it's very easy to imagine that everyone knows what they're doing except that's you. Okay. <laughs> yes, that's so Where it's true. just like, oh, every bi person probably has a handle on their bisexuality except me. Everyone's very like certain in who they are, very static in themselves except for me, and I'm in chaos, I'm in flux, and I don't understand what's going on. No one really knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think that that can really lower the stakes a little bit when you're out going on dates with, I don't know, people of a gender expression that you're not. Yeah typically dating
1: yeah i mean i wanted to echo to just how um the honesty and self-awareness of this letter i think is just a real uh a real benefit to you like to the letter writer like if you sort of even i think like lead with that like if you express that these are fears you're having to people that you are you know chatting with or whatever i think that's gonna help you know For one thing, it will probably, uh, you know, filter out the folks that aren't willing to to Mm -hmm. be in that sort of maybe slightly teachery role with you. Um, And it may attract like you were saying, Christina, it may attract people who are into that. And maybe that's the best outcome, you know, to find somebody that that is going to be kind and sort of easy about uh, introducing you into this. uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap up. OK. Good luck, baby. Bye. (laughs) Yeah, good luck out there.
3: Who else have we heard from this week?
2: Our next question comes from Horny in the DMV. Hi, I'm also in the DMV. Perhaps I know you, but no (laughs) pressure to out yourself. Anyway, here's their question. I'm a queer woman married to a trans man. I'm obsessed with sex. I think about it all the time, but I've never actually had sex I found very enjoyable. Being touched intimately hurts physically, and I'm very body conscious. How can I mesh my fantasy life and my real life? So there's two main issues here, a physical one and a mental one. Yes. I think, first of all, this person should absolutely talk to a doctor doctor. about pain during sex. That's what doctors are there for. Obviously, some occasional pain during sex is normal and extremely common. But if every intimate touch causes you pain, there very well may be an underlying condition Mm -hmm. at play and something that could be treatable or workaroundable if you understand it.
0: Absolutely. And also, I kind of forgot about the DMV area. I was thinking, like, a (laughs) DMV.
2: Yeah.
4: (laughs) Just like,
0: okay. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's an inopportune place to be horny, I
4: guess. (laughs) (laughs) But why not? I love the honesty. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. um, No, I absolutely agree. And it's funny, like, I do get a lot of letters where the advice sort of has to become medical. (laughs) Yeah. Especially, like, I think with, like, uh, you know, queer people, a lot of it kind of ends up in that physical place where I'm like, you should probably get that checked out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I think it's a really interesting, difficult subject to tackle of, you know, to what extent should our fantasies overlap with our sort of physical realities? Mm. Um, Because, you know... Uh, part of what I like about fantasies is that they don't always... <laughs> um, I think if all, all my fantasies came true, I would just have different fantasies. So it's always right. like a matter of balancing how much can I import into, you know, a manifested reality? How much should I leave over there? And um, I've done a lot of that myself, exploring and just sort of thinking, hmm, how can I make this happen? <laughs> yeah, It's a loaded question.
2: <laughs> I just want to say, I I think this person is in a really good position as a queer to confront these issues because as queer people, we know that sex can mean a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, queer and trans people have so many more options. Straight people too could have those options, but I think they're way less likely to take advantage (laughs) of them. So for instance, there are plenty of ways to enjoy or even like approximate sex acts that don't actually involve touching your genitals that could involve touching other parts of your body performing you know the motions of intimacy or even of like intense fucking without penetration Mm -hmm. um it can be just as hot and fantasy fulfilling as doing you know the the sorts of acts that hurt um i think a large part of what we fantasize about in sex isn't necessarily like the specific feeling we get in our underwear but like Power dynamics, yes. emotions of our yes. bodies yeah. and like yeah. feelings of true. closeness or of like intensity. And I think those are things that can absolutely translate yeah. into your real life without the specific kinds of touches. Yeah. That and, hurt. you know,
0: communities around those things very much exist yeah. and they're out there and they' so easy to engage with them. I mean, especially like when you look at like the kink community, for example, mm, yeah. Yeah. there are community resources for kink that I have – I had no idea until I started interacting with it. I'm just like, wow, your system is set up really well. A lot of them are educational in nature. Like, Mm -hmm. there are little, like, classes you can take. I did one in D.C. a few years ago where it was like, I guess in my little uh, brain, I was just like, oh, this is going to get so sexual and so uncomfortable. And I'm really just here to learn how to tie someone up. And you get there and it's like... I don't, it's like the least sexual thing I've ever <laughs> yeah. done, where it's just like, okay, folks, today we're going to learn how to do this knot on this like, test dummy or whatever. It like, might as well like,
2: be a Boy Scout Exactly,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. It really felt <laughs> that way. Yeah, yeah. But it, um, doing that class really helped me, too, because I was like, oh, this could be a real thing. It entered my realm of possibilities then, where it's just like, there are people out there who enjoy what I enjoy. And you know yeah. that i can connect with them in some way we can make this a reality just knowing that even cuz i think i feel like this person's very frustrated with like not even knowing if that
3: exists mm-hmm. right i mean she says that she is obsessed with sex and thinks about it all the time and then she allows that she's never actually had an experience of sex that she found enjoyable and so i wonder if whether or not thinking about it all the time is part mm. of the problem yeah. that she's that she is turning the sex into a cerebral experience, mm-hmm. uh, Christina. As you just said, it's not always a feeling in your underwear, which is a very cute expression. But like, <laughs> you know, trying no- to
2: keep it <laughs> possible <laughs> <not really laughs> as possible here on outward. <laughs> but nor
3: is it, nor is it wholly a cerebral experience. Right. It's sort of like a little bit of both. And yeah. if you are holding yourself to some standard mm-hmm. of pure fantasy, well, mm, reality right. can never live up to that. It's so interesting
0: you say that. So like, as a like kinky person or whatever, I've plan to meet with some people before and then we get really carried away with like the dirty talk and sort of what we're going to do and we sell these expectations what we're going to try and then we get there and it just doesn't work yeah (laughs) a lot of things that i've tried to do have been poisoned by expectations and it's not a matter of like not knowing what i want to do or having a misguided notion of what i want to do it's more not allowing those expectations any sort of fluidity or flexibility you need to have some degree of like things could feel different in person. There has to be some level of playing it by ear because if you want everything to go perfectly as you fantasized, life just won't accommodate that. Yeah, (laughs) It never does. You have to sort of be willing to let things, you know, germinate and happen organically
1: to some degree as well. Well, that totally brings up my thought for this person, which was that, uh, and this maybe sounds obvious, but I think it's worth like repeating, is uh, communication is going to be so important Mm -hmm. with your partner. So like uh, with your husband, um, you know, if if you're not, if you feel like you're not already doing this, like, talking, taking things very slowly and like talking about what is working, what is not working mm-hmm. step mm-hmm. by step by step by step seems like it's going to be crucial to figuring out, you know, what is not going to be painful, assuming, as we said, you get you, you sort of get checked out medically, like if, if nothing's going on there, then it sounds to me like you just need to really be talking like all the time about mm-hmm. it, until you sort of figure out what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's that's with with any partner for sure. Yeah, a lot of running advice column is
0: just finding fancy ways to say communicate better. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, easier said than done sometimes. Oh my God, and, yes. And I would, uh, just as a final note um, from my end, I would encourage her to watch different kinds of porn with mm-hmm. people with different kinds of bodies mm-hmm. just to address the sort of body conscious aspect of it. I think I've recommended this before, but Crashpad has an incredible diversity of bodies, of types of sex, of genders and and pairings of people. And I have found that, to, that resource, <laughs> I guess, porn mm-hmm. site to be really helpful in terms of like expanding my own definition yeah. of what sex can be. And especially, I think it could be valuable for this person to experiment mentally or physically yeah. with different roles during sex. So maybe like trying to see if it would be you know, enjoyable for her and her partner. If she took on the role of like a service top, where yeah. giving her partner physical pleasure is the name of the game
4: mm. or
2: like just thinking about different acts that, that might not necessarily pop up naturally in her fantasy life, mm-hmm. but could become part of it with a little bit of nudging.
0: Yeah. Having a body is such a tribulation.
2: <laughs> oh my God. It's the best and the worst.
1: Yes. Uh, so true. That
2: was a great question.
1: Great question. Yeah. Uh, So this is from a listener going by the name Ace of Lonely Hearts. I'm queer on multiple levels, but most people, including the men I date, assume I'm a cis straight woman. The thing that most affects my dating is my asexuality. I'm not sexually attracted to anyone. I'm not repulsed by sex, but I also have zero instincts or drive to initiate and really no clue what to do once the ball is rolling. I'm not a virgin, but I also can't get the hang of things. It's like expecting someone with zero interest in tennis to be able to consistently and enthusiastically go head-to-head with Serena Williams without immediately getting hit by a ball and dying of blunt force trauma. (laughs) Wonderful image there. Uh, (laughs) My approach to dating has historically been, don't tell them until it becomes an enormous unspoken issue, and obviously that isn't panning out. I just moved to a larger city, and I'm thinking about dipping a toe in the dating pool again, uh, but I feel like I need to be more forthcoming this time around. When and how, though? What is the sweet spot between too much information way too soon and why did you wait until nine awkward sexual encounters later to say anything? How do I approach the topic without immediately scaring guys? You know, there aren't enough ace people for me to exclusively date them, and most people immediately write off ace people as undateable. I just want a chance. Any advice is greatly appreciated. So I think the key, the key question there is when is the appropriate time in a uh, dating situation to share this kind of yeah. uh, information about their asexuality? Yeah. What do we think?
2: First of all, I just want to say this is at least the third email. We've gotten like this in the past month. Mm-hmm. And we're just one podcast, one yeah. humble podcast. <laughs> so I want to assure this listener that this is a much more common issue and yes. predicament than they might think. And there are actually maybe a lot of ace folks out there, maybe not enough to exclusively date, but certainly a lot of people dealing with the same issue.
0: Yeah. Um, the Olapoppy inbox looks the same way. It's a very common letter to get mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm asexual. And then From there, the letter either goes on to how do I date Mm. or do I get to identify within the community one of two ways. But just based on the sheer volume of letters, I think that, yes, it is something that exists and therefore is something that can sort of be negotiated around talked about Mm
4: -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. internally
0: with and without. And in terms of like letting telling this person, it's it's always hard telling someone when to divulge (laughs) something. It's always difficult because it's like, you know, anytime you're in a relationship, a dynamic opens up and you sort of have to negotiate their needs with your own and so I'm always hesitant to tell someone like this for example like you need to be right up front with it right away yeah. day one or whatever because is that helpful? <laughs> I really don't know. But
3: I mean at the same time as like I only I, I'm i married I was going to say I only date men but I'm married my husband would be so upset. <laughs> uh, but I'm gay and I would not when seeking to date want to date women. Right? Yeah. So like isn't this just another like isn't isn't that just sort of a categorical imperative that I would have to say, like, well, when I'm looking for a partner, I'm looking for a man. Mm-hmm. And so, when I'm, if, if I were asexual to say, when I'm looking for a partner, I'm looking for someone with whom I will never yeah. be sexually intimate. So, one thing I know about um, from asexual people and from this letter
0: as well is that, you know, romantic and physical encounters do happen. Yeah. It's just that they happen maybe a little bit differently. The frequency is differently. Um I know a lot of Ace people who are like, you know, I like making my partner happy. Yeah. And so yeah. I enjoy, yeah. you know, physical interactions on that level. Um it's just that for a lot of people, knowing that they too are getting sexual satisfaction out of it is a big deal. Sure. <laughs> um and sure. I think that's a struggle. And also this person and a lot of Ace people may not want to the way they engage physically may not look like what we no, mm-hmm. yeah. it may not be what we're familiar with, because I know we for me,
2: because uh, yes, um, yeah. I
0: know that for me, and especially like, you know, speaking as a gay man, it's sort of like, I assume that a guy is not really into me if there's not that sort of like a yeah. little bit of physical attraction at the beginning where they're like, you know, footsie or whatever, or like touchiness or something. Those are my cues that I'm like, OK, this person, this, yeah. this person likes me. Um, The language is different. And I think that's why, you know, historically, I haven't answered a whole lot of letters like this is because there's so much I don't understand. And I know that it's like such a huge spectrum and that it looks different for a lot of people because I'm sure there are asexual people who are like, no, I am also aromantic. (laughs) Like, I don't want to do anything physical with another person. Right. And yeah, I think getting advice from me, (laughs) someone whose entire life has been spent speaking a different sort of physical, intimate language may not be the most useful thing in
1: the world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a really good point to make all, you know, we're all, all four of us here are speaking from, uh, not this position. So, it, so, you know, take that, uh, with however much salt you would like. But, you know, when I read this letter, I was, I was worried about this person, um, having had, like, this, you know, wait until nine awkward sexual encounters later. Yeah, so, yeah, like, that yeah. sounds really awful. Yeah. Um. So whatever, you know, whatever the moment is, I, I also would not say, like, third date is when you have to, like, that's so hard to say. I think, you know, generally speaking, I think when a relationship is sort of shifting from kind of getting to know you friendship into, like, yeah. something like affection or romantic territory um, or, da- you know, dating territory, that would be the time but it's just so hard to say like when when that time is but i want that this uh listener to be able to feel empowered to say it earlier mm. because going through nine yeah you know yeah and, and that's probably a bit hyperbolic but like that that doesn't sound fun for yeah. you like for, forget the other people like you are in an uncomfortable situation by not saying this and so uh, I think definitely feel empowered uh, to say it yeah. earlier. It's just hard. It's hard for yeah. It's hard for us to say like when exactly that yeah. would be. And you know, like
0: regarding timing, I always tend to think like, is not divulging this thing starting to tax me or the relationship? Mm, and I right. think that's always the point where it's like it's time to sort of make this a thing because that's, that's good, not yeah. always like the first date. It's not always right. the third date. But when it starts to be like this is getting in the way of things, or like if this person would like not see me as a romantic partner once they know this thing. I would rather do it now because I'm starting to get invested and doing it later down the line would hurt me more. So I think those are sort of the equations to run when it comes to yeah. letting your partner or potential partner know, here's something about me that you should probably be aware of.
2: Yeah. I also think it it could be possibly a good thing to manage expectations so that the yeah. person that they're having a sexual encounter with isn't like, what's going on, you mm-hmm. know, or or, or feeling uh, like there might be something deeper that's that's wrong with the connection that y'all are having instead of just, oh, this person is asexual.
3: right? Mm-hmm. And
2: so I think it could be great to say, you know, when things start getting romantic or sexual, like, just say, I mean, just say I'm acting like it's so easy. I've never said this, obviously. But, you know, I'm asexual. I, that doesn't mean I'm repulsed by sex, but I don't experience sex drive in the same way that people who aren't asexual do. So, for instance, here's the kind of relationship I'm looking for or the kind of sexual encounter that I'm comfortable with and just explaining what you do want and what you are comfortable with instead of just things you aren't, which somebody who's allosexual and has never dated anyone who's asexual might not even know where Mm -hmm. to start. And I think that's the only situation where it would really be sort of intimidating and a a difficult conversation to have.
0: Mm, Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I hope that is helpful. Um, Yeah. Thank you for this question. Thanks so much for the question. Yeah. We wish you luck.
2: All right. Our next question comes from Lonely Lesbo. I'm a young adult lesbian who is finally comfortable with her identity, but not too comfortable with sexuality. It feels like every lesbian online and in the popular world embraces their sexuality and knows exactly what identity they are, whether it be butch, femme, etc., I just feel like I don't fit into that conversation, though I want to. I'm barely 20. Am I too young to understand exactly what I want? Am I taking this all too seriously or seeing too much of it? I just want to feel fully secure, but also not pressured to do anything I don't want to do. Thank you for your time. What a polite end Aww. to that question.
1: Yeah. yeah. So sweet.
3: So nice.
1: Um, well, I feel like 20 is definitely not... <laughs> not too young but like it's certainly it's certainly okay not to know this yeah. at 20 mm-hmm. like my gosh yeah,
2: <laughs> I, I, it's I, okay I not know. to know that at 40 absolutely oh indeed but like 20 in
1: particular like yeah yes. like you're yes. okay
0: yeah so I like the idea that we could ever truly have a firm grasp on who we are mm. <laughs> I don't think that like that for me that would be me, so nice <laughs> once I once I gave up on that life got a lot better for me this idea that like I am this sort of static being in need of my definitions and once I find those words that can define me I'll be able to move through the world more confidently and connect with people more meaningfully but I don't think that that's how things work I think language is an imperfect tool to begin with it is inherently difficult to uh, encapsulate an entire experience with a word with any sort of language and I think embracing that chaos actually is a little bit queer to me Mm. (laughs) I think that that in and of itself that willingness to sort of chafe under you know the confines of being defined or being categorized sort of defines the community in a way so once I stopped caring so much <laughs> about looking for that certainty, I felt a lot better. However, I also know that when you're young and you're just now coming out, those things can be very helpful in terms sure. of finding new people, understanding yourself better. But I think just recognizing that these are tools. They're not here to sort of lock
1: you in. <laughs> and there's not one that you are going to like It's like unearth in yourself. Exactly. Necessarily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
3: it's not binding. It's not for life. Mm-hmm. Right? right. It's not exactly. like, you know. You can change your mind. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You can always change your mind.
2: Yeah, I think some people find a lot of security in labels, and some people find a lot of freedom in labels. But not everyone does find either right. of those things in them. And and like you said, uh, John Paul, they're meant to serve you. You don't have to figure out, you know, the one secret thing that's been lying inside yourself this whole time. Yeah. Um. I mean, one of the best things I did in my early twenties is hook up with a lot of people i would never hook up with now yeah. or like identify and present myself in ways that now feel completely foreign to who i know myself to be at this moment. Yeah. And i would say that those experiences and experimenting with some of these labels or identities helped me feel more secure now at age 32 with who i am even as i'm still open to changing. You know, i think it 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 can be fun to to try on those different identities if you feel called to. But also I think, you know, this letter writer mentions the online discourse. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people use those terms, sometimes overuse, you know, labels, as just like a little bit of a, a shared language between queer people and it's fun to make jokes about and it's mm-hmm. fun to you know riff on stereotypes and make memes mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. things but it doesn't yeah. mean that everybody who's talking about those things fully identifies with a very narrow and stagnant definition exactly. of like what's a femme and what's a gemini and what's a bottom <laughs> and, <laughs> Top,
0: and so, yeah um yeah one little observation i have with stuff like this that kind of tickles me is just that like there is no actual tangible physical archetype. Like these, mm. these are all just like ideals. They're never fully embodied by one person. I like the idea mm. of there being some sort of like herb butch out there, yeah. where it's just like, yeah. oh, you are the consummate butch. Like, how can I be more like you if <laughs> I want to? I mean, Katie to, you know. Lang
2: would beg to. Death.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say Leah Deloria. If you're not uh, Katie Lang, yeah. then you're not you're not <laughs> a butch. You're not doing it the
0: real way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: I just think that's funny because for me, it's like. I don't know. This letter just feels like the writer is someone who is very young, mm-hmm. and she says it. She says she's young. She's f- she she uses the words finally comfortable mm-hmm. with her identity and not comfortable, not too comfortable with sexuality, and that I think that just takes yeah. time.
0: And I think, too, one funny thing that sort of ties all these letters together, and one thing I've noticed as an LGBTQ, specifically, advice columnist, is just how self-aware people tend to be. (laughs) Mm, Just how, like, interrogating and tortured by having to, like, observe themselves and sort of figure out who they are. That is a common
1: thread in a lot of the letters I get. Yeah. Well, Lonely Lesbo, we are... Uh, rooting for you, but uh, yeah, maybe want luck. you to take some pressure off yourself yes. and, uh, and just let it let, see where you end up. Um, yes. Would love to hear about that later.
2: So, for our final question, I believe we have a call that's coming from inside the house. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> uh,
1: yes, I, I brought a question. Uh, I'm <gasps> hoping you all can help me. We're ready.
3: Uh, Do you
2: want us to use one of those voice? Scramblers, <laughs> no, 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 that's no, fine. I'm, I'm very happy to ask this question. <laughs> Only in New York. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: no, I'm happy to ask this question live and on the record. Um, and I will, and, and and you know, we'll have the benefit of me being here. So if you have follow ups, you can uh, you can do <laughs> yes. that. All right. So uh, as I've said on the podcast before, uh, I am in a triad relationship uh, with uh, two partners and myself. Um, which technically would make me poly, uh, although, and here's the the issue: I don't think I really identify with the poly community, or as our producer put it to me, helpfully the other day, politics, uh, the politics <laughs> of polyness. Um, so, so let me explain myself a little bit. So it seems like to be, to identify sort of with that, with like polyness or the poly community or politics, you need to be pursuing it like as a lifestyle all the time. Um, and in, in my particular case, I was not. Uh, when my uh, partner, uh, my longer term partner and I met our third uh, partner, it was just like an accident that it happened, right? Like that we fell in love and, and sort of found ourselves in this situation. That was that was not um, something I was actively pursuing. So there's one part. And then I feel like the other thing about polyness is it seems like this kind of identity where you have to go to like meetings and meetups and message boards <laughs> to kind of be doing it right. And that's not something that I have ever done or been interested in. So there's there's my psychology around that. question is, is this bullshit Do I have a responsibility (laughs) to identify as poly just given how marginalized those slash my relationships are in the world? I feel kind of maybe guilty about it. Um, What do y'all think? Wow.
0: (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, I think while you were talking, one thing that just came to my mind is just how beautifully messy everything is in life it's just like you say it happened as a happy accident I think everything happens that way Mm -hmm. and so we can when things like that happen we can come to see it as just entirely our own thing like my circumstances are actually very different because they happen so organically and they couldn't possibly be tied to this larger sort of (laughs) matter of vocabulary and lexicon and meetups as you said it's like no this exists outside of it and I think if that's how you see it and if that's how you inhabit it I don't see anything wrong with that but Mm. I would hope that you know if in your vicinity you saw someone speaking ill of people who were in a poly, poly yeah. Yeah, or something like that, you would draw on that wealth of experience to say, actually, I know that it doesn't have to be that way, mm-hmm. or I know that it's like this.
4: hmm
2: Yeah, Brian, I would challenge you to – I would lovingly call you in. Please. (laughs) And challenge you to to just examine whether there's a little bit of internalized polyphobia in there somewhere. uh I think about this video that I once saw that was sort of going viral. This was like before social media was even a big thing, I think. And it was like someone had made this song. It was called – Something along the lines of, it's never who you want to be polyamorous who is polyamorous, and it had this stereotype of poly people as like you know guys in fedoras and loud shirts who like hit on everybody and are bad right. at social cues, and that's that not, not Brian. Not... I'm just
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> as You're I slowly take my fedora accurate. off, slide it um, into the table,
2: like a, you know that's clearly not the case in an extremely like reductive stereotype. Yeah, And so I think people like you, and especially the way that your relationship came about in, you know, not at a poly play party with a bunch of straight people at it, but just because you and your longer-term partner fell in love with someone like could do a lot to help sort of broaden the idea Mm. of what polyamory can be. That said, I don't think anyone in any situation has any sort of responsibility um, to act a certain way or advocate in a certain way just because they're a member of a marginalized group. Um, so no, I don't think you need to be like writing personal essays all the time about it, (laughs) but at the same time, like for your own sake, I remember one time you were talking to me about bringing up, you know, introducing the third person to enter your relationship to your family and Mm. you're sort of looking for resources to help you figure out how to do that. Like that's a situation where being part of a quote unquote poly community could possibly be Mm -hmm. helpful yeah and so i think your reluctance to identify that way or feeling like you don't necessarily belong because of existing stereotypes about what poly people are could be hurting you
0: yeah yeah and i think you know this is not directly analogous whatsoever um, if for no other reason, then I don't want to make the analogy. But I think when I was coming out as gay, I assumed that a lot of other gay people were these like one dimensional mm-hmm. sort of like caricatures. They didn't have a lot of the nuances or dimensions that I thought I had. And growing up has been a lot of learning that like other people are just as richly textured yeah. and yeah. varied as I am. So, you know, you mentioned a lot of these like tropes and stereotypes about poly people like, you know, the meetups and the newsletters and stuff like that. But the people who run those and go to those do lead lives are just as complicated. They probably <laughs> met people in ways that are, yeah. would look very similar to yeah, yours. And I think yeah. that there's a lot to connect with there and so I definitely understand the reluctance because I mean and again this is an analogy but it's like I'm always on the hunt for a fitness group that doesn't feel like a cult
4: <laughs> 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 so
0: I'm always looking for some sort of group to where they're not like launching the thing on me in workout for you being like hey so now you were going to start calling you this word and like <laughs> we are we have to get this gear and <laughs> we're going to have this we're going to pray of, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, we're going to yeah. start doing the the ohm stuff right? Right. You know, it's like yeah, there's always yeah. something right yeah. and it's like god I don't want to do that <laughs> so I'm completely you know open to the idea that there are things about any community that's like, no, right, <laughs> I
1: right. don't feel
0: like doing that. And I don't think it should be on you to do that. But I think, you know, bearing in mind that a lot of those people, they're probably their lives look probably look pretty
1: similar to yours. Yeah. Can now, be helpful. I'm feeling very productively called on <laughs> uh, by, by this no I, I think the the comparison the analogy to, to yeah to like you know I'm, I'm not one of those gays mm. is yeah. very apt actually mm. and I, I'm kind of embarrassed that I hadn't you know quite put it in those terms but I think you're I think you're totally right
3: I mean I also think that you like other people who wrote in this week could go easier on yourself because mm-hmm. you are having this conversation in public yeah. right mm-hmm. now so like you're you're pressing on your own discomfort but i think ultimately you are standing up to be counted so to speak yeah. and i think that's you yeah. know that's no small thing we love to yeah. torture ourselves i think that's what binds us together as a yeah.
0: community <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs>
2: So true. Um, well, do you want to come up with a cute nickname for yourself, Brian? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well,
2: then thank you for bringing your concerns to this table.
1: Thank you for listening and for uh, yeah for for calling me in so gently, <laughs> <laughs> so polite. John Paul, thank you so much for joining us. This was so amazing. Thank you for having me. Um, tell our listeners where they can find you and what you're working on now. Yes. So you can find Ola Poppy the column at
0: substack.com. And I am working on my book, which is coming out in 2021, also called Ola Poppy. And if you want to follow yes. me on Twitter, gay Twitter, I guess <laughs> it is at JP
1: Bramer with two Ms. Awesome. Uh, I highly recommend uh, doing following Twitter and also subscribing to the newsletter uh, column. It's really <laughs> fantastic to get Thank it you. every week. Yeah,
3: yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So we talked a lot about sex. But Valentine's Day is really about love. And <laughs> really? Isn't that so cute? So, Valentine's Day feels like the right time for a gay agenda that is about representations of not queer sex, which we all love to look at and think about, mm-hmm. but queer romance. Mm-hmm. Really romantic queer narratives um, that have meant something to you in your lives. And so, I think we all brought one to share to make our listeners' Valentine's Day more wholesome and sweet.
1: <laughs> Um, who wants to get started? I can go. Okay. Sure. Tell us, Brian. So, my favorite, uh, representation of a queer relationship, uh, maybe of all, is it of all time? Close. Certainly up there, top five. Is this TV show from a few years ago called Vicious, uh, huh. which was a British sitcom starring Ian McKellen and Derek Jacobi as a old older gay couple? <laughs> um, they had you know a little group of friends, is like sitcom-y in that way. But um, they were for for most of the show, their love was expressed through sort of bickering and vicious, uh, uh, kind of campy um, slights and that kind of thing, and they were wonderful at that. But in the final episode of the show, the series finale. Um, it gets a little warmer. And this is also like a Christmas episode, a very British thing, um, which is very sweet. And our dear um, executive producer, June Thomas, actually reviewed the finale. So I just wanted to read a quick line from her review, which I think really captures why this, this romance was so beautiful. In the final scene, as Stuart puts his arm around his husband as they lie in bed together on Christmas night, surrounded by the friends who have become their family, Freddie whispers the final words of the series, so happy. That was always Vicious's dominant emotion, even if some viewers were n- unable to detect it. Um, so, yeah, I loved Vicious. This finale was beautiful. Um, love to see old gay people being happy together. Um, so, highly recommend it to our listeners. That is so, so sweet
3: and so yeah. moving. Um, I have a similar story actually about a relationship between people who are a different age than I am. But there is a book that came out last fall called Love Icebox. Mm. And it collects the correspondence, the one-way correspondence from John Cage, the composer, to Merce Cunningham, the choreographer. Um, They were sort of heroes of the American modernist avant-garde who were also lovers. And it was well known within their circle, but... And it is documented in art history, but it's also something that's kind of looked away from, which is what happened with gay relationships in the 1940s. These letters were written between 1942 and 1946. They're super horny at times, (laughs) but they're also just very, very sweet. And when you see photographs of these men, these sort of titans of American art, they're always kind of standing at a little remove from one another. They don't have their arms on each other. They don't read as a couple in the way that, like, photographs of couple contemporary couples do because they're bound by a different kind of discretion. And these letters, which are so intimate, really lay bare the romance between them and... There's something so icy and serious and heady about John Cage's off-on-card compositions. And, you know, there's something so abstract and hard to access about Merce Cunningham's dance. But there, when you read these letters, you see Mm. that there was this very human thing between the two of them. And it's very sweet. And you just think about... The, the the very long history of gay romance that went unwritten because it couldn't be written, and these letters are really just a wonderful and valuable look inside of that, and a reminder that like your own gay romance is it's wonderful and special, but not groundbreaking. There's something <laughs> about <there's> something <laughs> about remembering that that feels really lovely and sweet, um, especially because. John uh, Merce Cunningham, in particular, he lived to be quite old. And so my image of him is as, like, an older man. It's like you're saying, Brian, about the show. Like, there's mm-hmm. something sort of great and sweet about, like, an older gay couple that sort of did it and survived, you know? Yeah. So it's a book called Love Icebox. I really recommend it very highly. Yeah,
2: Wow. I love that. And I love Merce Cunningham. So I went on a little journey as I thought about my recommendation this week. I wanted to recommend a film. And not a specific one, I just had it in my head that I was going to recommend a good queer romance film. As I was thinking about them and sort of Googling around to remind myself of what I've seen, I realized that most movies about queer women, like almost exclusively, movies are about coming out, Mm. about teens realizing they're gay, coming-of-age sort of story, or about straight-identified adult women realizing they're unsatisfied and leaving a man for a woman. Uh, So first of all, I just want to put this out in the world to manifest it, that I need more romances that start with two or more adult queer women and end with two or more adult queer women. Mm -hmm. Uh, In that vein, I'm going to recommend a thoroughly imperfect but also thoroughly enjoyable film from 1999 called Better Than Chocolate. Everyone is queer when it starts. Everyone's (laughs) queer when it ends. It's canadian it's about a lesbian named Maggie who works at a queer bookstore in, I think, Vancouver. And uh, a shipment of books gets stopped at the border because they're considered obscene. Ooh. So there's a little bit like a free speech uh, plot line to the story. Um the the main two characters meet and have this incredibly intense romance over the course of a day that it only takes up like the first 20 minutes of the movie before they're back home basically moving in together because one of them is living in a van. Classic uh,
3: lesbian story right there, right?
2: You know, I think that <laughs> I'm going to push back on that. But OK, point taken. Um, they they like before they even have sex, they make a painting with their naked bodies. They like paint each other and roll around on this canvas, oh. which I guess is technically sexual, but I think it's more sensual and romantic. It's, it's a movie that you'll laugh at and laugh with in equal measure. Um, There are a few really great performances, several terrible ones, but all in all, it's an extremely heartwarming and romantic movie with a lot of great music in it, Um, and it's very 90s and very Canadian, and I couldn't recommend it more.
1: Uh, That sounds fantastic. I want to see that immediately. You should. (laughs) All right, uh, that's it for this uh, special Valentine's Day edition of Outward. Uh, please send us your feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Uh, we really enjoyed doing this advice episode, so I think we'll keep collecting any of your questions and perhaps do more of that in the future, so send, send your questions there. Uh, Thank you to Melissa Kaplan, who provided engineering assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the true heart of our show. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds with our regular February episode on the 26th. Um, Until then, wishing you
3: a wonderful Valentine's Day. Goodbye, my Valentine's friends, Christina and Brian. Mm. Happy
2: Valentine's Day, you guys.
5: purchase necessary. VGW Group. where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th.